0: Well, good morning. After Don's uh, prayer and buildup got me intimidated, <laughs> I almost didn't get up here. <laughs> I realized I was in trouble. Before we uh, get into our, our passage today, I just wanted to tell you all how encouraged I was as I studied it and I thought about how uh, you all in this body really seem to have grasped what Paul is trying to get across to these Ephesian believers. As you know, uh, what Paul's doing in the book of First Timothy is trying to counter the effects uh, of some false teaching that was going on in Ephesus. These false teachers were uh, disrupting the, the churches, the house churches that met throughout the city. Their false teachers, false teachings were, were causing all kinds of confusion and disruption. Now, men were coming together as a result of this teaching and arguing and fighting. And there was just a lot of strife. Uh, certain women, uh, were uh, involved with, uh, with confronting the teachers that were teaching, pushing themselves and, and, and their views rather than listening to, the, to the, the appropriate leaders. Things were just in chaos. Things were very much disrupted. The unity and peacefulness of the body. Was pretty well lost. the The real leaders were were being confronted and, and argued with at every point. their Their ability to lead was largely frustrated. Any submission to uh, to godly leadership and right teaching seems to have been lost. Now, uh, what was so encouraging to me as I studied this passage was to see the contrast between what was going on there in Ephesus and the loving submission I see in this body toward our leaders. I think even in areas and in situations where you all may, some of you may disagree with a decision that's being made or the way a passage is taught, that disagreement is expressed in a gentle, loving manner. I think God has has greatly blessed us through the maturity, the godliness of you all, and I am very grateful. I think there's a remarkable sense of peace and cooperation here that allows us to move as a church. And I think we're going through a time of redefining our, our goals, our purposes, we're again looking for God to lead us into being a church of people who pray. We're looking for Him to lead us to concern for the lost among us and around us. To use us to have an impact on our society, on our whole world. And as God leads us in these ways, it's so important that we're working together. It's so critical that, 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 that our, our leaders... Have the ability to encourage us, to help us in these and other directions without struggling and fighting at each point. See, I think this is what Paul was trying to bring about by his teaching here in 1 Timothy chapter 2. I think he is trying to to settle things down, to free the leaders up to lead, to free the church up to move in the directions that it really needed to move, And I think as we study this passage, we'll see how these goals are really what's behind all of his instructions. I also think as we study this passage, it's very helpful to understand a little of the background, what was going on in Ephesus. So let me tell you a little about Ephesus. Long before uh, Paul's time, Ephesus was the primary... Uh, financial commercial center for the whole region of, uh, of the Roman province of Asia, a huge province. Ephesus had a beautiful protected seaport, made it ideal as a center for culture and for, for commerce. During uh, its uh, time of grandeur, Ephesus was an enormously wealthy city, and much of that wealth was funneled into the worship of their local Deity, the the goddess Artemis, or as uh, she's better known to us, the goddess Diana. You see, the temple to Artemis was the central banking institution for the city and for the entire region. That's typical of the way the uh, the the commerce was was structured in these uh, all the way through the Roman world in these ancient cities. The, The banking institution was part of the temple complex, part of the temple organization. And as a result of the enormous wealth that was being channeled in to the temple of Artemis, that temple was an enormous, beautiful, uh, almost overwhelming structure. The, the, the temple to Artemis at Ephesus is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But over the years, the, uh, the harbor there in, in Ephesus began to silt up. Uh, it became less and less... Uh, Uh, appropriate or or useful for merchant ships, and the financial prosperity of Ephesus declined rapidly. Its glory was gone. By the time of Paul, uh, Ephesus was no longer the center of commerce for that whole area. In fact, the city had become largely dependent on the temple to Artemis for its tourist trade, For its for its income. Uh, Worship of Artemis was the only thing that was bringing money into the city. That's why in Acts 19, Paul went there and started leading a lot of people to the Lord. Some of the merchants got together and started a riot. One of their uh, guild leaders, a guy by the name of Demetrius, he calls the rest of them together and he says, and I'm reading from Acts 19, Men, you know we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There's a danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty." So a, a, a mob formed, and they went and attacked the Christians. They grabbed some of the leaders. They were looking for Paul, but they couldn't find him, so they grabbed a couple of other guys. But the clerk of the city came out, and he calms them all down. He settles them all down, and he says, Men of Ephesus, doesn't the whole world already know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are indisputable... You ought to be quiet, not do anything rash. You've brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor, nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open. There are proconsuls. They should press charges. And he settled the mob down. He sent everybody home, calmed everything down. But did you notice how, how the primary concern for everyone involved was the temple to Artemis and the money that it brought in. That's the center. The temple to Artemis was the center of all Ephesian life and society. Worship of the goddess Artemis was particularly popular among women. Legend had it that the worship of Artemis was founded by women warriors, the Amazons. Uh, Artemis was considered the, the source of life, the mother goddess from whom all human life derived. She was the goddess of fertility. She was the goddess of, to, that protected women during childbirth. A, a woman would go and offer a sacrifice of clothing to the uh, idol to the, to, at the temple to ensure a safe childbirth. Many women, most women, especially wealthy women, would try to imitate the, the clothing, the dress of Artemis. Unfortunately, it was a very sensual, seductive type of dress, very opulent with braided hair and pearls and jewelry and, and, and fancy expensive clothes. Women were the leaders of the religion, of the worship of Artemis. They were the priestesses. They were the authorities on proper worship. There were large numbers of women who were what we would call temple prostitutes because part of the worship at the temple involved these elaborate orgies where where the men would come and get drunk and have sex with these temple prostitutes. These orgies were wild affairs with drunkenness and all kinds of brawling and fighting and debauchery. Well, this is the uh, culture... And the background of Ephesus, this is how these people looked at religion this is the the culture that the believers there were being saved out of, but this culture continued to have an effect on these people. This was the world they lived in that they came from, and may explain some of perhaps the the legalism that we 've looked at before that some of the Jewish Christians may have been resorting to legalism to try to put a stop to some of the inappropriate behavior of the, uh, the Ephesian converts. But they went way too far. They, they confused and, and obscured the fact that we are saved by grace and that, that it's God's grace at work in us that changes us, not coming back under the law. This also may explain why Paul, when he's talking about the false teaching, refers to it as strange doctrines. There in chapter 1. And while he's trying to put a stop to the propagation of what he calls myths and endless genealogies. You see, you had the legalists on one side. And then you had those who were trying to conform Christianity to their own culture and society on the other side. And Paul was giving Timothy the very difficult job of trying to counter both of these. So that the true gospel could really shine forth. See, that's what was going on on in Ephesus. That's the setting for our passage today. Let's start with, with verse 8. 1 Timothy 2.8. Paul starts by saying, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. Now Paul's point is not that men always have to pray with their hands in the air. That is typically the way people prayed in those days. They would stand and hold their hands in the air. But Paul's point is that those hands should be holy. That they should be praying without anger and disputing. You see, you've got to remember that these guys were used to coming together to worship and getting in fights and arguing. It didn't feel at all inappropriate to them to come together and, and argue with each other and get mad and throw a fist or two. That just was the normal way you worshiped. That's not the way it's supposed to be. When the when the church comes together, this was a difficult transition for many of these men, because their culture encouraged that kind of confrontive, argumentative behavior. And I realize there's a lot in our culture that encourages that kind of behavior as well. Sometimes it's very difficult as people come into the church to leave that kind of behavior behind, to not bring it. Into the church with them. It's sometimes a difficult transition, sometimes very hard for those who are actively involved in politics. You see, our political culture is based on holding a position, arguing for it, confronting the people you disagree with, lobbying others to agree with you. When people, are men and women, who are immersed in that culture... Come in to the to the church. It's hard to break those habits of, of confrontation, of arguing, of lobbying, and get everybody on your side against them. But again, that's not the way it's supposed to be when the church gathers. Or consider our, our political culture, where men and women have to push their agenda. They've got to overcome obstacles, even when those obstacles are co-workers or other people. It's a, it's a culture where power is to be cultivated. Ruthlessness is rewarded. I have a good friend who actually lost his job because his boss said he was too nice. He just didn't, he just cared too much about the lives of other people. He was not ruthless enough. His boss flat out told him that's why he was firing him. He wasn't a driver. He wasn't pushing. Pushing people hard enough. And that's often the climate that our business culture develops. An atmosphere of conflict, competition. Again, that isn't the way that that God wants it to be here in the church. When people bring that way of acting and that way of leading into the church, the churches become places of conflict and arguments and struggle. You know, how many churches are characterized by mean, stubborn, argumentative people? You know, the spirit of the church turns into one of fighting and, and tension and competition. I was reading in a book called Leadership, or a magazine called Leadership Magazine. They were telling of a situation, one church, where, where two deacons actually got in a fist fight with each other up at the podium as they were trying to get the congregation to, to adopt their own position. You know, and the those outside the church look on and they shake their heads and they say, these people have nothing different to offer. The antidote to all of this, Paul says, is to pray together. Lifting holy hands. Now the word Paul uses there for holy means pleasing to God. It's not the typical word for holy, which means set aside. This one emphasizes being pleasing to God to God. You see when we come together our goal can't be to have our agenda adopted. Our goal can't be to to have our position win out, to gain political control of, over, over the the congregation. No matter how strongly we feel about a certain issue, our goal has to be to please God. This is his church. It's his agenda that matters. It's his goals that count. And his goals are that we humbly trust him and that we humbly love each other. See, when we come together and express our dependence on him through prayer, when we express our confidence in his ability to take us, to lead us where he wants us to go, when we lovingly pray for each other, by his Spirit God develops an atmosphere of peace. And unity, and then within that atmosphere, we can begin to discuss our differences. To talk about how we see things differently. And God uses that process by His Spirit to take us where He wants us to go. Let me encourage you. Let me call on you. If you find yourself in disagreement, in conflict with a brother or sister, stop. Suggest that you pray about it. Together, come before your Lord. Lay it all out before Him. See where He takes you. Let Him be Lord. So Paul has addressed a problem that had come up mainly among uh, the men. That was they were fighting and arguing. Paul calms them down, settles them down, gets them to pray instead of fight. Now he... uh, Is addressing a problem that was coming up primarily, predominantly among the women. Starts talking to them in verse 9. Now, verse 9 actually starts with a word that is left untranslated in the NIV, in most of your Bibles. The word means in the same way, likewise. And, And what Paul's saying, with the same attitude of unity, of gentleness, of cooperation. Then he goes on to start talking to women about how they dress, how they adorn themselves. Listen to verses 9 and 10. I also want women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Now, what I think was going on here in Ephesus was that some women... Who were used to, from their culture, dressing like the goddess Artemis. They were used to very sensual, seductive dress. Paul's saying, no, wait a minute, don't dress that way. And those same women, or maybe other women, were also used to competing with each other with their clothing. They were used to trying to, 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 Show their pride and their competitiveness by one-upping each other with their fancy clothes and their fancy hairstyles and their expensive jewelry. It was all an expression of competition and and pride and and struggle. Paul says, no, that's not the way it's supposed to be. The world measures worth by wealth and external beauty. Paul says, that's not the way it should be among you. Get your attention off of those things. Those aren't what real beauty is characterized. Real beauty is characterized by a spirit that produces loving behavior. You see, And these principles that Paul is giving to them apply to us. Our society encourages men and women to be sexy, seductive. Our media pumps us full of this stuff. And I, I don't think Paul is calling on us to be frumpy out-of-date, unattractive. Now, clothing, hairstyles, jewelry can be attractive. But when our motive, when our goal becomes to be sexy and seductive, we are doing a disservice to our brothers and sisters in Christ. See, our sexual appetites are one of the most powerful parts of our personalities. That's the way God created us. In Genesis, we're told that first of all, that we are spiritual beings. We are created in the image of God. We can relate to God spiritually. But then the very next thing we are told is that we were created male and female. We are sexual beings. See, the only thing more powerful in the human personality than sexuality is spirituality. It's only as we allow our relationship with God to control our sexual appetites, that they can be controlled at all. There's a constant struggle to bring our sexual desires, our sexual appetites, our sexuality under God's control. And when we dress to be sexy, not only are we allowing our own sexuality to take control rather than our relationship with God, but we are also making it that much more difficult for our brothers or sisters to bring their sexual appetites into submission to God's control. It's wrong. It's unhealthy. It's harmful for the body. And and let me emphasize this for the women here, too. It's a fact that most men are more visually stimulated than most women. That's one of the reasons that pornography is largely a male vice, See, I think an awful lot of women don't realize the impact of seductive clothing or immodest clothing or adornment on their brothers. They're not affected the same way, so it's not obvious how it affects their brothers. But part of maturity in Christ is growing in our skill at loving people who are different than us, understanding their needs, understanding who they are, Let me call on you to let love be what dictates your attire. The same way that you let love uh, dictate control, um, let love be the motive behind what you wear, also let love monitor your extravagance. There are many here who are doing very well financially, and that's great. But there are many here who are not. And it's all too easy to let our expensive cars or expensive clothing make those who excuse me, aren't doing as well feel out of place, feel uncomfortable, feel like they're not welcome or valued. You see, we want this church to be a place we're rich and poor and everyone in between feels equally at home, equally valued. We don't want this to be an exclusively upper middle class church. We want this to be a church for everyone. And in the way we handle whatever wealth we have, we can have a profound effect in loving or harming our brothers and sisters. And again, it's wrong when we use our wealth for our own pride, for our own confused self-image at the cost of our brothers or sisters. Let me encourage those of you who are parents how important this is in our children's ministries and our our youth ministries. It it may be fun to get your child the the, the, uh, most popular tennis shoes or the name brand clothes. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with that in and of itself. But consider the effect that your children's clothing may be having on other children in the ministry. And consider what you may be teaching them But where their own self-image, their own self-worth comes from. It is not to be found in their clothes or their wealth. And consider your own attitude. Is your dress, your clothing, your attire an expression of your own pride and your own confused self-image or is it an expression of your love? That's what Paul is calling for here. Instead of uh, buying into our culture's uh, confusion, focus on wealth and external beauty, Paul is calling on us to, to focus on something else, to focus on character, To focus on behavior, on the way we treat others. He says, decorate your life with good deeds as is appropriate for a woman who professes to worship God. Now in Second uh, Timothy, Paul makes it very clear that good deeds are not how we earn our salvation. They are really the, the, the outworking of God's grace in our lives. They aren't how we gain God's favor. They are the effect of already having God's favor. We all want to be beautiful. We all want to be handsome, attractive. But true beauty comes from the inside, from a heart that is submitted completely to God and so filled with His love that it spills over into good works and spills over in the way that we treat other people. When my kids were younger, they had a uh, book called Sleeping Ugly. It was a book about a prince who had to choose between two women to wake who were both under a spell. One woman was very physically attractive, very rich and glamorous. The other woman was very plain but he knew her to be a woman who was filled with kindness, inner beauty. In the end of the book, the prince, because he's wise, chooses to kiss the uh, homely woman and wake her up to be his bride because he recognized true beauty. He could see it. Let me tell you about uh, one of the most beautiful young women I've ever known. Her name is Don Bailey. Dawn uh, has severe cerebral palsy. All of her physical features are very contorted, spastic. But all it takes is one look into her eyes to see the joy and the love that was in there. I used to work at a home for severely handicapped to where Dawn lived. And as I got to know the woman inside her, I was almost overwhelmed by her profound beauty. See, nothing is more attractive in a woman or a man than a gentle, quiet spirit full of God's love. Nothing adorns a person better than the radiant joy that comes from knowing God's love and the spilling over of that love and the way we treat other people. That's what true beauty is really all about well Paul has been addressing men and women in the city of Ephesus he's been trying to counter the effects of the Ephesian culture on them he's been uh, uh, trying to correct the men who had been used to coming together in an unholy way with struggling and fighting tells them to pray instead of fight he uh He's been addressing the wealthy women who were used to coming together and competing with their wealthy clothes and their jewelry and their hairstyles and who were used to imitating the goddess Artemis in her sensual and seductive clothing. He's telling them to stop. He's trying to settle them down. All of this cultural baggage had come into the church and it had, had destroyed the love there, had destroyed the peace, was disrupting everything And Paul is trying to quiet these churches so they could get on with loving God, studying the Word, moving ahead. That brings us to verse 11. Paul says, A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. Now let me tell you what I believe to be going on here. In uh, 2 Timothy 3, we find out that one of the tactics of these false teachers was, as Paul puts it, to worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who were burdened down with sins. Now Paul is not uh, suggesting that women are weak-willed. He's just saying that these men prey on women who are weak-willed. These men were praying on, on women, uh, probably wealthy women, who had a lot of time on their hands. And who, who really hadn't grasped the grace of God. They were still weighed down with, with all kinds of, of sins. And these guys would go into their homes and talk with them for hour on end. They would uh, they they would indoctrinate them in, in, in these strange doctrines and mythologies. They would recruit these women, kind of as the vanguard of their heresies. These uh, th- these false teachers would appeal to their pride and what Paul calls their their evil desires. They convinced these women that they knew best what should be taught. After all, didn't their culture teach that women were the authorities on spiritual things? They were the true leaders. They were the source of life and truth and knowledge. Some of these women may even have been leaders within the Artemis cult before their conversion. But anyway, these women were going into the gatherings, the the churches that met in people's homes. And they were disrupting them. They were arguing and interrupting Inhibiting the ability of the true leaders, the, the, the leaders to lead and the teachers to teach. They had become a vanguard of these these heresies. We're pushing their own, uh, their own views, pushing themselves. And Paul again is trying to quiet it down. To settle it down. Stop the disruption. In fact, the word he uses there in verse 11, when he says that he wants women to learn in quietness. The term for quietness does not mean to not make noise. It means to settle down, to be at rest, literally, to be at peace, to not be all stirred up, stirring everything up and causing a disruption. He wants these women to settle down, to learn, To listen, to to be taught with all submissiveness, he says. To submit to to, to the teaching of the appropriate leaders and the appropriate teachers. The emphasis there is on learning. These women needed to learn, to be corrected. Because they were really confused and and out to lunch in the things that they were trying to push. And then Paul says literally, I am not allowing a woman to teach. Now we know that this is not a universal injunction against women teaching in all situations because Paul himself had women teaching in a variety of situations. He encouraged older women to teach younger women. We have women like Priscilla who along with her husband Aquila taught and trained, discipled Apollos, others. You see, the injunction for a woman not to teach is in connection with his instruction that a woman is not to usurp authority over men. That's the way the King James translates it. The word he uses there for authority is a very unusual word. This is the only place it's used in our Bibles, in the New Testament. Elsewhere in in the Greek language, other Greek literature, the word isn't used for appropriate normal authority. It's always used for an autocratic, oppressive, domineering, dominating authority. Someone who on their own authority pushes themselves and takes control. In fact, one of its most common uses is as a synonym for murder. Somebody who dominates another person to the point of killing them. That's never the kind of authority that God wants for His people. Again, what I think is happening here is that these women were coming into these gatherings, were pushing themselves, were trying to dominate the meetings, were trying to assert their own teachings and assert the the, the things that they had learned as, as being the true teaching. They were causing all kinds of confusion and disruption and Paul is putting a stop to it. Now, I don't believe that this is a prohibition against women teaching. Nor do I believe that this is a prohibition against women having uh, positions of leadership or authority within the church. Again, I just see Paul's own behavior elsewhere seem to contradict that. As we were looking at Philippians, the last book we looked at, uh, we we ran across um, Iodia and Syntyche, these were women who Paul calls his, his co-workers. These were women who helped him establish the church in Philippi. They were the, part of the leaders of the church. And In Corinth, we know that women led in prayer and prophesied in the gatherings. Later on in 1 Corinthians, when Paul is talking about everything being done in an orderly way, Each person bringing a a, a hymn to sing, a word of instruction, a prophecy. We, We have no indication that women were excluded from these activities. In fact, I think from the context, it would suggest that women were included in these activities. Again, what I think is going on is that Paul is trying to stop What was going on there, the disruption that was going on there in Ephesus. Just like in verse 8 of our passage, his point wasn't that men should raise their hands when they pray. His point was that they should settle down, stop fighting. His point was not that women should never have their hair done or wear jewelry. The point was they should settle down and stop competing. Stop using their their dress, their clothing in an unloving way. Just like here, I think his point is they should settle down. Stop pushing themselves and and their views. Stop disrupting the body, the, the teaching, the things that were going on. In fact, he ends verse 12 by repeating that same word that means to settle down. To be at rest. To stop causing a ruckus. In fact, Paul uses this um, same word in 2 Thessalonians when he's instructing some men who had quit their jobs and were just running around causing problems. Paul tells him to settle down, to stop it, to quiet down, and to get jobs, get back to work. You see, I think what Paul is concerned for is that these churches, these gatherings be freed up again to come together in peace, to be taught the word, to to to, to uh, love each other, to understand God's grace, and to begin taking the word of that grace to the people around them, sharing the gospel with others who weren't yet believers. And all of this disruption was just getting in the way. Now, um, the next three verses are very, very hard to understand. You may have heard them taught in a certain way, and therefore it seems obvious. But anyone who teaches these next three verses has to supply an awful lot of argument. Obviously, Paul leaves a lot of his argument out. Timothy probably knew exactly what he was talking about. Unfortunately, we try to reconstruct his argument and fill in the blanks. And different people fill in the blanks differently. But let me tell you, again, what I think he's saying. First, he says, For Adam was created first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. See, I don't think he's so much giving his reasons why a woman shouldn't have domineering authority. Nobody should have that kind of authority in the body. That's wrong. I think his his what he's doing is refuting some of the false teaching that had been going on. If you remember in the Artemis cult, that women were the source of life. They were the source of truth. They were the source of understanding. They were the authorities on how worship should take place. And some of what was going on is these women were being convinced that that's what their role should be as well. And Paul is just saying, no, it's not. Women are not the source of life. man was created first, then Eve. First Corinthians, when Paul talks about uh, the same concept there, he has a different purpose in it, excuse me, but what he says is man was created first, then Eve, and then from then on, every man came from woman. Woman first came from man, and every man after that comes from woman, and it all equals out. We're on a par, we're equal, we're codependent. That's that's not the right word psychologically anymore. We are dependent on each other. (laughs) That's the word I wanted. And he's trying to say, no, women are not the source of life. And women aren't the authorities. They're not more reliable when it comes to spiritual things. Eve was deceived. And then she became a sinner. See, women are not the authority. They're not the source of understanding. Scripture is our authority in spiritual things. And the teachings of the apostles illuminated by the Holy Spirit is our source of understanding of spiritual things. And now we come to verse 15. Let me read this one. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. I got to tell you, I I don't know what this verse means. (laughs) Uh, In in, in 2 Peter 3, verses 15 and 16, Peter is talking about Paul's letters. He refers to them as Scripture, And then he says, and these are Peter's words, that Paul writes some things that are very hard to understand. I think uh, Peter was looking at this verse when he wrote that. Because it's very hard to understand. I have read maybe six or seven somewhat uh, plausible reconstructions of Paul's argument, but none of them are very satisfying. Let me give you a couple. Uh, One possibility... Is that uh, because in the Artemis cult, these Ephesian women were, were used to going to the temple, offering a, a sacrifice of clothing, as, as to ensure their protection in childbearing? That Paul is trying to get them away from that, to say, "No, you don't look to some goddess." Even though that's, I mean, that was kind of the standard medical procedure in their society. They were used to doing that. Parent, their mothers had done that, and their mothers' mothers. He said, "No, that's not what you do. God is the true savior." And what matters is not some ritual. What matters is faith and love and holiness. Get your attention back on these things. Now we know this is no guarantee that a woman who is faithful will be protected in childbirth. That's just not true. Too many over history, too many faithful, godly women have died giving birth. So this isn't a guarantee, but at least it gets the attention back on to God and to, to faith and love, holiness, rather than some ritual. Another possibility is that um, since Paul inserts in this verse when he says A childbearing, he inserts the, the article the in the Greek before that. Maybe he's talking about the childbirth, the birth of Christ who is our Savior. And again, his, his attempt is to get our focus back on faith and love and holiness in response to that Christ child who grew up died for our sins. But bottom line, I I honestly don't know what he's trying to say in this verse. Again, you have to fill in a lot of blanks. This is one of those things I think we're going to have to ask Paul when we see him in heaven. But let me uh, just close with pointing out what I think is is a profound irony. Paul's purpose in writing this section of 1 Timothy was to calm them down. So they get on with loving each other, worshiping God, sharing the gospel with those around them. To put an end to the endless controversies. But this passage seems to stir up more controversy and arguments and anger than any other passage that he wrote. You know, people get very upset. People on one side accuse uh, others of hating uh, women and using this to, to, to put them down. Coming from the other side, people uh, accuse interpreters of, of uh, caving in to modern feminist pressure and the name-calling and the, the accusations get downright hateful. But whatever else Paul is trying to do, whatever else he's trying to communicate... What he's trying to say is settle down, love each other, be at peace, work together, follow the leaders that God has given you, and do it gracefully, even when you disagree. Several years back, the elders here at Cole got together after literally years of study. We took a whole weekend to try to come to grips with this passage. We spent a lot of time in prayer, study, discussion. What we discovered was that we could not agree on the interpretation of all the details of this passage. But as we prayed together, lifting holy hands, we came to remarkable agreement on how to proceed. There was complete unanimity, not on our interpretation, but on our commitment to walking together. We developed policy for this church. There are copies in the rack, and I think there's a couple stacked up if you want to get a hold of one. But basically, the conclusion we came to is, one, since we really couldn't agree on all the details, that we would choose a course of action that was characterized, that emphasized freedom and ministry rather than restriction. Secondly, we agreed that from other scriptures, like Ephesians 5 When it comes to the home, it's very clear that the man, the husband, is to be the head in the home, which means he is to set the the atmosphere of love. He is to love his wife sacrificially and to nurture her spiritually as Christ loves us. When it came to those passages on eldership, men should be in those positions of servant leader described for elders. But when it comes to women teaching within this body, holding positions of real authority and leadership. We felt that was entirely appropriate. As long as it was done in submission to the scriptures and in submission to the leadership of the elders. The exact same concerns we would have for a man in those positions. Now, I don't expect that all of you have agreed with all of my interpretations today. In fact, I expect some of you didn't agree With any of them. But it's also my confident expectation, knowing your maturity and godliness, that any disagreement that we have will be held and expressed in a loving, gentle, respectful manner. You know, let's settle down. Get on with loving our God. Sharing the word of His grace. Exalting the name of Jesus among us and to the community around us. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, so easily let our pride, let our fears, let uh, so many things come between us. We uh, strain at gnats while we swallow uh, camels. Lord, help us to continue to trust each other, even as we engage in discussion, dialogue about passages like this, about where you're taking us as a church. Help us to move together, filled with your grace, filled with your love, producing good works. Lord, we praise you that your spirit is powerful, able to accomplish that in us. We just commit ourselves again and anew to you. For you to accomplish your goals, your purpose, your agenda. Pray this in your name, exalting that name. Amen.